Let's move further into step 10 now. If you take a look at the, uh, some of you have this throwaway. I uh, printed up a, um, uh, uh, some people might appreciate this and some people might have absolutely no use for it. Uh, I just wanted to share with you the beginning of my morning regimen of prayer. I say, I am powerless. My life is unmanageable. I know that you will restore me to sanity. I turn my will and my life over to you. That's the first three steps. And then I say the third step prayer. And then I say the seventh step prayer. And if there are things that we're, a friend of mine uh, and I before were talking about, repeating the same kinds of behavior and over and over again, repeating the same kind of resentments coming up. And what I like to do is, let's say I have, you know, I have a, a problem with my boss and, 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 and there's certain defects on that that appear every time that I'm self-centered, I have unreasonable expectations, I fear confrontation, self-pity, self-centered. He treats everybody like crap, not just me. Whatever the thing is, that when I say my seven-step prayer in the morning, I can have a little extra time with my higher power and say, you know what, I'm going to go in, I'm going to see him this morning, what should I do? I need to get rid of the self-centeredness in this area, what should I do? And sometimes the inner voice would say, stay away from him. Sometimes the inner voice would say, go in and make him coffee. There's no hard and fast rules about it. I talked briefly before about that kind of spirit in Alcoholics Anonymous. If you study the, the history of AA, one thing is really clear. There was no body was saying, this is the way it gets done. These guys were wackos. They were drop, Bill was dropping acid. I mean, read Pass It On. There's a whole paragraph. As a matter of fact, he dropped so much acid that some guys had to go, Bill, stop. You're playing with a headless doll under a black light. Stop it already. He started eating niacin and like preaching niacin. I mean, they, they, they would stay up at night and play with a Ouija board. My point here is that they were real seekers. And the people that I've hung out with and get most from in AA are seekers and people who stay spiritually pliant and inclusive. And because of that, I've been, uh, my sponsors have had an opportunity to grow me up spiritually. And it's really been wonderful. And then uh, what I did was is I went through uh, the section on Step 11 in Chapter 6, and I sort of made a list of all the things that I'm kind of instructed to ask God for. <clears throat> Father, please direct my thinking today. Show me all through the day what my next step is to be. Give me whatever I might need to overcome such difficulties. Please keep my thoughts especially divorced from selfish, dishonest, and self-seeking motives. Please keep me from self-will and self-pity. Hold me close to you. Reveal your work to me and give me the power to carry it out. Hold me close to you and keep me sober just for today so that I might better do thy will. That will be done, not mine. And now I, I open up to God, ask what's in store, discuss what's current, pray openly and honestly, have a real breathing, living relationship with my higher power so that in all matters I can turn to the Father of light who presides over all. It's a wonderful quote that I, I just love. I'm going to jump forward two sheets ahead. It's in huge print. And it was an expression from a, a spiritual teacher uh, that just captured me, and I wanted to share it with you. Because if I don't do that morning dedication, if I don't do the 10th step, if I don't allow that to bridge me over to the 12th step, this is such a beautiful expression of what happens when people walk away from AA. God does not die on the day that I cease to believe in a personal deity. But I die on the day when my life ceases to be illumined by the steady radiance renewed daily of a wonderful, of a wonder, the source of which is beyond all reason. What a gorgeous expression of what happens in AA for me. Uh, I was talking briefly before with a woman who's sponsoring somebody who uh, just went out. And, uh, and, and what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? For me, without the 10th step, there is no 12th step. There just isn't. You know, and that's, that has been my experience as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
One of my favorite people in AA was a guy named Howard Cooper. He died with 22 years of sobriety. He was an incredible guy, and he was a skid row bum and a gentleman, a gentle, gentle man. He was thrown out of the harbor lights in uh, L.A. a number of times, and I want to tell you, to get thrown out of uh, Skid Row harbor lights, which is Salvation Army, you've got to really be an overachiever. And um, Howard got sober, and uh, in his first year he was uh, asked to go uh, do a 12-step call on a guy named Sullivan downtown in a Skid Row hotel, and he went down with this other guy. And they talked to this guy, Sullivan, who subsequently after that night uh, drank himself to death. Ten years later, Howard was about 11 years sober at a meeting, and a guy walked up to him after the meeting and said, um, you saved my life. And Howard said, I, you know, I, I'm sorry, I don't know you. And the guy said, well, remember this guy Sullivan? And he described him, and Howard said, yeah, he's, he, he died. And the guy said, I was hiding under the bed the night that you 12-stepped Sullivan, and I heard every word that you said, and I never had another drink. You, you, just, you just don't know what you're doing when you do it. You just don't know, you know. Um, one night, Howard was in my home group. He uh, went to drive to Vegas at night, and he got out on the at night on the in the desert. And a cop pulls him over first thing, sees the chase, says, "Son of a," and he gets pulled over. And this cop walks up to the car and says, uh, "Are you a friend of Bill's?" <laughs> Howard says, "Yeah." What do you mean? The cop says, "Well, I saw your bumper sticker." He says, "I'm a friend of Bill's too. I like to have a little fellowship at the beginning of my shift." So I, I just want to. <laughs> They hung out for a while, you know. <laughs> there was this uh, great guy, a member of my home group, another guy who died sober with over 20 years of sobriety. And his name was uh, Bill. You call him, he was an English guy. You call him Bill of London. And I'll tell you this story because uh, he loved the story. It's his favorite story, and it's one of my favorite stories about newcomers. This old guy had a 12-step call, and he grabbed the guy with just a couple of weeks to go with him. And they got in the car. Drove out to the country, hit a dirt road, out the dirt road, out into the boonies, and they get to where the guy is, and it's not even a house. It's a lean-to with no door. It's got like a burlap flap. And they go in, and there's this helpless, sick drunk in just wearing underwear, stained underwear on a stained mattress with nothing on it, and a little candle in a can flickering, and he's sucking on a bottle of wine. And the new guy looks at this guy, and he says, look, I'm new here. I don't know that much about this thing. But one thing I know for sure, if you don't stop drinking, you're going to lose all this. And I, 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 I thought it was like, it's just one of the best stories I've ever heard in my life. And the guy, you know, you know probably went, yeah, he's right. I, you know, down to my last can here. Without, without 10, there's no 12. This friend of mine in uh, L.A. was... Uh, <laughs> he was answering phones at central office, and this woman called and said, uh, how long is the waiting list for AA now? And uh, he said, what are you talking about? She said, well, I told my old man he either had to go to AA last week or get it the hell out of the house. And he went and he called you, and he came back, and he said, they're full. And, um, <laughs> but they put me on a waiting list. They're going to give us a call, you know, when something opens up. So I want to just know if there's the space available now. And uh, he said to her, I think you have a long wait. I think it's going to be a long wait. Um, I'm resentful at the men I sponsor quite often. And if I didn't sit down and write, <sighs> you know that guy, Jay, I told you about the guy with the book before? Uh, about a year and a half ago, he, uh, 
the pain got so bad that he tied his neck to something on the wall. He couldn't find anything to hang himself from, and he sat down until he was dead. The pain was so unremitting and so horrifying, he couldn't bear it anymore, and he had to turn it off. I'm resentful of Jay for drinking and dying. It affects my self-esteem, ambition, and certainly personal relationships. What are the defects? Well, I'm self-centered because part of me is saying, after all I've done for you. You know? I'm playing God. I was resentful at my father for dying. That's a terribly embarrassing thing to have on an inventory, but I was. One of my defects was playing God. I was deciding when people should live or die. And you know what another defect was? Was ungrateful. I had my father until I was 21. I've met a lot of people who have never had their father, never met their father, wished they had never met their father, you know, um, <laughs> and, and certainly not had him all that time. So I have found for me that this, this process of the 10th step um, has been the saving grace for me. And I tell you, I, w- I would have stopped sponsoring a long time ago. And I certainly, I've had many resentments against my sponsors. And I've had to sit down and work the 10th step and take a look at what I could do. But what if it doesn't go away? What if it doesn't go away? I'm 10 years sober. I'm up to over 300 pounds. Can't weigh myself anymore because... Uh, my scale only goes up to 280, and I'm not willing to go down to a freight scale and, and weigh myself. And that's the only thing I could weigh myself on at, at that time. What am I going to do? I'm, I'm now flying all over the world to AA conferences. I can barely fit into an airplane seat. I'm about to ask for the airplane to the uh, seatbelt extension, a golden moment in anybody's life. And, uh, and I'm, 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 I have no sex life. I'm completely unavailable. I am the, the scariest, most awful walk to me in the world is the 20 feet from my seat to the podium to talk to thousands of members of Alcoholics Anonymous because I can't bear being seen. Am I doing good work in AA? Absolutely, no question about it. I stopped smoking in Smokers Anonymous. What does that have to do with sobriety? Absolutely nothing unless you're going through with it. Unless you're going through it, it has absolutely nothing to do with sobriety unless you're going through it. I want to stop smoking. I'm scared. It makes me scared all the time. Every ache I have, every pain I have, I immediately becomes brain cancer. I, I'm scared. I'm, I'm having a hard time breathing, and it's starting to scare my children. I don't know what to do. I finally go to Smokers Anonymous. I want to be in Smokers Anonymous like I want to tap a ten-penny nail into my eye. All right. Now, one of the things I have done to make amends to my wife is I have gone to great extremes to make sure that I am never in a position of compromising myself with any with women, with women in AA or outside of AA. And it has nothing to do with anybody but me. But I put my I was so off in this area, I have just made sure that I don't I don't sponsor women. This is you know, I, I don't I just don't do that stuff. I have great friends, great relationships, and I just make sure it's in a certain framework. One night after I spoke, this woman came up to me and she we had a talk. I don't know why, it just seemed like the right thing to do. We had to talk. And afterwards, she had t- came back to me subsequently and said, you know, you saved my life that night. Of course, I have, you know, I saved her life for like I ch- saved Jay's life. I, I have no power at all. But that's what she said. Now, this is the reason why I mention it. I finally go to Smokers Anonymous, and I'm terrified. I'm terrified because I finally have something that's working in my life. I have asked to be relieved of drinking, and you know what? I am. I'm not only relieved of it, I'm helping other people. My family's getting better. We're making a new beginning. It's working. 
How am I going to ask God for this other thing? How am I going to ask Him for a thing? If I, and I see guys all the time, they're stopping smoking, they're stopping, they're stopping. What if I go to God and I ask Him to remove the cigarettes and He doesn't? I'm going to drink again. It's all a house of cards. It's going to come tumbling down. And it's starting to feel like self-help. Let me do this. Let me do that. I like to lose 10 pounds. I want my hair to be a heavy descending hairline. I want, you know, what do I want to do? It's starting to feel off. And so I go to Smokers Anonymous meeting, and the woman who told me that I saved her life is taking a cake or whatever they give you, a carton, whatever, whatever they give you, uh, for a year, a year off cigarette, cigarettes, and she gets to the podium and she says, you know what, people in AA who still smoke work shitty programs. So I do a Yosemite Sam, my brain blows up, you know, and I go home and I'm nuts, I'm psycho. And I sit down, I do the 10th step. I'm resentful at her for saying, this, the defects of character. I'm saying, so I didn't help you. I didn't help you, right? I work a crappy program. I couldn't possibly have saved your life. <laughs> Thank God I said this to myself, right? <clears throat> and when the dust cleared and I got right with God and I got right with my sponsor, what came out in the wash? She was wrong. She was wrong. My life was being illumined by a source beyond my comprehension, that I could ask God to lift my cigarette smoking, to lift my eating, to lift whatever I wanted, and if it didn't happen, I didn't have to drink. One had absolutely nothing to do with the other. I quoted this the other night. It's one of the greatest things I've ever heard. I heard a guy say the, uh, the line that it's all the same disease was started by someone, by a recovery home that only had one van, which I, I, I love that. Um, <laughs> So you know what? I was asked, I, I uh, asked God to take away the cigarettes, and my God said, work the program. I took a service commitment, and I, I got relieved of it. So I'm 10 years sober, and I'm over 300 pounds, and I'm talking all over the place, and I'm writing. I'm writing. I'm writing like a maniac. I'm resentful at Scott for being fat. Affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex. What are the defects of character that if God would remove the resentment would be gone? I'm a glutton. No, don't, don't fight me on this. I'm a glutton. I'm, I'm self-serving. I'm not letting anybody feed me. I'm taking care of the whole thing. I'm not letting anything else nourish me. Not my wife, not my career, not my art, not my God. I'm taking that, okay? Low self-esteem, stubborn. I keep doing the same thing over and over again. People-pleasing, mind-reading. I think everybody's thinking about my weight. You guys don't even have time to think about anything but yourself, by and large. I mean, I know I have precious little time besides me. <clears throat> and I write it, I read it, I go out and have a pie and a bowl of spaghetti. <laughs> What's wrong? What's wrong? I'm writing it, I'm reading it, I'm doing it. Writing, reading, doing. <laughs> My sponsor said, you know what, you're going to have to go back to the first five propositions in the book. Remember when we talked about six and seven before? You're going to have to go to the first five propositions in the book. You're not doing this successfully. What, is the, what does the book say in the section of six and seven? It says, we go over the first five propositions, <clears throat> and we say... Am I, tr am I ready? Have I properly worked the first five propositions? And now I can say, in this area, in this specific area, what am I leaving out? Where's the chink in the armor? Is it step one? Am I not really admitting I'm powerless over food and my life is unmanageable in this area? Is it step two? Do I not believe that God can restore me to sanity in this area? Father, I know you can keep Saturn on its axis, but you can't order lunch for me. Is... <laughs> Is it step three? Am I not really asking for the removal of this? What does it say on the bottom of, I believe it's 63? 
62 actually, he is, he's the agent. He's the director. He's the father. I'm going to be the kid. I'm going to take that direction from him. Like the section on step 11. I'm going to, I'm going to ask for an intuitive thought. I'm going to pause. I'm going to take a breath. I'd ask for help, but my mouth's full. Um, or is it step four? Do I actually have to do more inventory? What does it say in step five? Have I kept, it says the newcomer has kept facts about themselves, which later made the whole thing collapse. So have I not admitted everything? So I take the first five propositions of the book and I apply it to the specific problem that keeps recurring over and over and over again to me. If it's sex, if it's smoking, if it's, if it's uh, my weight, whatever it is. And my, 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 my program started becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. My enjoyment and my pleasure uh, and, and the delight I was taking in those first three steps, my appreciation of them became broader and broader and broader. Because 10, with these nagging problems particularly, I once heard someone say that God seems to use what we want most to rope us in, um, kept sending me back to the first five propositions in the book. And again, it's all got to be utilized through 12. All got to be utilized through 12. Otherwise, it's a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. I'm not, I'm breaking the deal of the third step. Take away my difficulties, the victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. And um, great stuff started happening for me. So I'd say, Father, what should, you know, the last question on page 69. The right answers will come if I want them. What should I do? So I want like to go to OA. No. Um, what should I do? And I kept on asking. And uh, the message to me was to go to Overeaters Anonymous. And I kept saying, no, you know, no. So finally, I'm now up past 300. I'm now in that state. I'm now I'm becoming further, and way, further away from my wife. I'm becoming more and more afraid in my relationship with my kids because I don't feel like I'm really going to be around very long. And it's affecting me at work, really impacting me at work. So I go to Overeaters Anonymous, which made my first AA meeting look like Studio 54. <laughs> now I am in the Mahjong game of my deepest nightmare. I am now, and was it really like that? No, it wasn't, but this is my perception. I'm, I'm dead, it's over, it's done. And I go there with so much spiritual pride. So I was putrid. You know, uh, I'm a circuit speaker. Yes, and a very fat circuit speaker, by the way. <laughs> but thanks. We're very glad you're here. Would you like me to speak? No. And if you take a look, it's a very powerful chapter, the chapter on, uh, on step two in the 12 and 12. Very, very powerful. And so applicable to the repetition of problems through step 10. What does it say? It says, it talks about clergy coming to AA. And it talks about, and again, you know the book, our book always says to us, don't fight with them. Don't fight with them. When the clergy comes, say, you're, you're a clergyman. You're a smarty pants. You know all about God. God forbid that I should tell you anything about God. I'm not going to say that. But you happen to be yellow in color. You're dying. And you have an enlarged liver. So I'm not going to teach you about God because you can quote the, cha the Bible chapter and verse. I can't even touch you on that. But I have a way. All I have is a spiritual tool to bring to pair the grace of God in this drinking problem to break the cycle of spree and remorse. That's all I can teach you. And you're right about everything else. And that's the way I went to OA. I went full of this spiritual pride. 
and they never fought with me. They said, you're right. Oh, we'll buy your tapes. Oh, we love you. <laughs> and it wasn't for a long time until I humbled myself. And I want to tell you, man, if I could only orchestrate my own humility, I'd be a much happier guy. I, I have never been able to orchestrate my own humility. And you know what? <clears throat> I can't understand anything I'm judging. I can't. The minute I start judging something, I don't understand it. I can't appreciate it. It doesn't, it's, it's, it becomes paper mache. It's something less than human. And I didn't understand what I was doing spiritually because I was judging it. And it only was, and it, it's what Bill said, <clears throat> they've got alcoholism. Alcoholism will school them. Alcoholism, if they stay here, if they continue to not drink, it will make them pliant. And I reached out and I, I really started getting help. I really started getting help. And I really started taking direction. <clears throat> I uh, <clears throat> grew up with a brother who, uh, when I, my brother stopped talking to me uh, sometime before I got sober. And one of the great things I was looking forward to uh, when, in my recovery was making amends to my brother and being reunited with him. And uh, I um, uh, contacted him, and I was just uh, so anxious to try to contact him and become part of his life again. And he, uh, I, I made the amends. He wouldn't answer my calls, and I wrote him a letter saying I was sorry. And he sent me back a letter uh, that said, if you lived to be a million and you were sorry every day of your life, you wouldn't even come close. And my sponsor, God bless him, said to me, uh, I read it to him, I read him the letter, and my sponsor said, rip it up. Rip it up right now. And I said, why? And he said, because you might reread it. You know, if you're feeling good about yourself, you say, hey, let me get that letter. Let's put an end to this crap right now. <laughs> think you're a nice guy? Get the letter. <laughs> what a beautiful, what a kind thing. What a kind thing to tell me to do. And, what a, and I did it, you know. And uh, I had done my job. I didn't even have to write another resentment about it. I, I, I was fine. And then time went on, and then the kids would graduate high school. Or the kids would get bar mitzvah. And I'd get an ouch. And I'd have to sit down and I'd write. And all of a sudden, in the defective character list, ungrateful comes up. And why does ungrateful come up? Because <clears throat> I'll tell you why. If you have this piece of paper, if you go to the second page, it says, wake up. Wake up. Somebody was, and I were talking before about self-centeredness, and she was saying this wonderful thing to me about taking a look at self-centeredness and realizing, what's in it for me? What looks good here? What looks good? Wake up. I want, if I want to change, I must wake up. I have been asleep. I'm seeing this problem in a cloud. I am letting it go below the horizon so that it does not present itself as a real problem. The food problem goes below the horizon. The drink problem goes below the horizon. The sexual problem goes below the horizon. Whole new thing. Bill and the guys couldn't even thought of it. Cyber sex, brand new. I remember a couple of years ago, the first time I got to say to a man, he read me a sexual inventory. I said, go home, pray, don't touch your mouse. First time I ever got a chance to say that. It's just amazing how this thing works in every area. No newcomer should have a high-speed connection. None, believe me. <laughs> when I see it clearly, it will not be precious to me because I'm seeing something of value in here. I keep returning to it. <clears throat> I cannot live this way knowing that this is wrong and continuing to do it. 
I must tell the truth about what I am doing to myself, to my sponsor, right? I have been willing to complain about it and to go on doing it. I'm, <laughs> I like that lady a lot. I must take it from a, cl- a complaint to a real piece, piece of business, make it a real problem. I must stand before it naked, make a surrender, take an inventory, make some kind of demonstration. For me, the demonstration predicated, especially if there's a repeat of examining the first five propositions and saying, what do I have to do? Is it step one? Do I have to admit I'm powerless? How can I demonstrate that? What kind of action will do that? Maybe going to OA will crush my ass up so bad it'll help me really take step one. Is it step two? Do I have to expand my prayer life? Do I have to seek other spiritual help? People talk about outside help in AA. And I want to tell you something. If I am going to therapy for a specific problem, if I am listening to spiritual tapes, as a result of my six and seven step, it is not outside help for me. If I am doing anything instead of AA, it's outside help. And so far, thank God for me, in 16 years, I've never done anything instead of AA. It's always been in concert of, and I've done what you guys do. Take a commitment, do the commitment. Hang out with the guy, hang out with the guy. Love the guy. That's the message. But if I'm doing it instead of AA, it is truly, for me, truly outside uh, help, and eventually might even take me outside, way outside. But I have gone to therapy because of 6 and 7. I have gone to other 12-step programs because of 6 and 7. Some people say AA should do it all. I disagree with that. I, I, uh, can AA do it all? Of course. Can AA do it all for that person? Of course. Should it do it all? I think it can and does if you perceive it all as a result of the work. And that's what it's been like for me. And it's been great. It's a, it's a kind of freedom and a kind of peace. And I have had, I've gone to a therapist. I went to one therapist, uh, Nancy and I went, and the therapist just, uh, suggested that I go on uh, medication. And I said, you know what? That's actually not what I came here for. And um, he said, well, I think that if you took the medication and reduced your anxiety, that you would have, uh, be able to cure the problem. And I said, well, I, for me, the anxiety is the problem. And if I get rid of that, I'm not going to deal with the problem. And that was the right thing to do for me. I have, uh, I sponsor people who are on, who are heavily medicated, who have severe mental problems, who if they didn't take medication, um, would be in really bad shape. I, I tend to not be able to sponsor people who are taking, uh, drugs that affect the, ner- the central nervous system. Uh, Valium, Thorazine, those zine drugs. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the other, uh, uh, School of Drugs, and again, I have no, I have absolutely no malpractice insurance at all. So I, I, I have no idea what the right or wrong thing is to do. But it's been my experience that uh, people who are taking antipsychotic drugs and drugs that uh, affect the, uh, the adrenal system, as I've had very productive relationships, and this is just me. Again, no indictment of what anything anybody else does. I've sponsored guys who have gotten on medication in sobriety, thank God, and I've uh, sponsored guys who have gotten off everything. You know, so who knows? Um, so, boy, I talked myself into a bubble. Give me a hint. Huh? Ten? Thank you. Wake up. Whew. This is not a small deal. I do not want to live like this. I am a grown person. I have been unconscious. I have been slipping into this behavior. I have been acting without explanation. I must ask God to help me keep this thing on a conscious level. I must elevate it in my conscience 
and see it as a real problem. Prayer is the measure of whether or not I'm in the game. Dear God, direct my will to what you would have me do. And that has been such an incredibly powerful tool for me. And what my sponsor and I have done is, is try to find new ways to keep the things that are very troublesome to me on a conscious and real level so that I can apply the spiritual principles to them. And um, I... Uh, My sons were all over my inventory, and I uh, had done some stuff that was just just miserable, just really really bad stuff. I really had injured my sons tremendously. When Micah was six months old, um, I was hung over, and he was laying. He was a six month baby. A lot of uh, six month old babies, or babies with that old, uh, do a lot of springing with their legs. They can't walk yet. Sometimes they can't crawl, so they spring. And he pushed off my body threw himself onto the floor, landed face first on a telephone, which was a rotary phone, turned his head, and the uh, hook on the phone slipped right under his eye. And I don't know if I would have reacted to it any differently, but I'll tell you what happened. Instead of carefully seeing what was happening with the baby and looking at him, I picked him up and it ripped the flesh under his eye. Now, the reason why I say that to you is because I never thought I was going to get over this as long as I lived. I didn't tell anybody what had happened. I took him to the hospital, and blood was streaming down his face, and my wife was there, and I said he fell off the bed and he cut his eye. Now, would it have happened if I wasn't, uh, wasn't hung over, if I was just napping, as parents do? It could have been. could have happened. Would I have made that mistake in terms of picking him up had I not been hung over? Possible. Possible. But that's not what happened. What happened was I was hung over. I was the drunken, worthless, piece of crap dad. That's what happened. And this was going to bore a hole in my head till the day I died. And the doctor said, when they, because then he had to have general anesthetic, six-month-old baby, got to put the IV in his foot, you know. And, um, and they had to, because they got to knock a baby out because baby can't sit still for stitches. To me, it might have to you. You might have looked at my son and saw absolutely nothing. I saw a scar. I saw a scar as plainly, and I saw it every day. Every day that I wasn't too drunk to see it, I saw it. And it was just an emblem of my absolute collapse of being a father. Just, just an absolute piece of crap, you know. I was the source of agony and pain and disfigurement for my children. And this went on my inventory. This went on my, I was resentful at myself for hurting Micah. I was resentful. You know what? It happened on my watch. And um, I, uh, I wrote about it. I prayed about it. And I want to tell you what happened to me. I, uh, when my son was five years old, Micah, uh, he came to me and he said, Dad, is there anything such as God? We were living near this Christian family, and the, and the kid in that family had talked about God a lot. And he said, is there anything such as God? And I looked into the eyes of my perfect five-year-old baby boy, and I said, no. I said, no. I told a little baby, in essence, you know when it's dark at night and you're scared and you can't go to sleep? Tough, because that's all there is. That's really what I told him, in so many words. And I lied to him. It's not true. And I did exactly antithetical to what I thought I was doing. I thought I was giving him the real deal, the real existential deal, what every five-year-old needs, the real existential deal. They crave that. That's why Fisher-Price has so much existential toys on the market, right? Schmuck. <clears throat> Schmuck. 
I thought I was giving him the real deal, saving him so he wouldn't have to be played like a sap and a sucker like those people out there. And what the big book of AA says, and if you're new here, please read the fourth chapter of our book because it talks about it so much more eloquently than I'll ever be able to. It says this is the weakest, mushiest, most pathetic thinking of all. It is exactly the opposite of that. If you, if you can stand in the presence of all this immutable law and say that there is no rhyme or reason to it, and it says something beautiful. It says you've already got what's necessary for sobriety. You've already got what's necessary for faith. You have been incredibly faithful and had tremendous faith in people, places, and things, in drugs and alcohol and all that stuff. And all we're going to do is put to work this incredible, incredible resource you have and turn it with some spiritual tools to having faith the, the, the evidence of your faith will come real to you. You know? When we drew closer to him, he revealed himself to me. And that's the 10th step for me. When I, that's how I draw closer to him, through 10, 11, and 12. You know? And um, when I first got sober, uh, my first guy I sponsored was a guy named Roland. And because I did the 10th step, which made me a good sponsor, and because I worked the 12th step, Roland used to call us every night. Every night, he'd call every single night, and he'd leave a message on my answering machine, and he'd say, Scott, it's Roly. I'm sober. I love you. Good night. And he'd hang up. I still sponsor this guy today. And Micah told me five years later, when I was six years sober, he came to me, and he said, you know, Daddy, when I was a little boy, I couldn't fall asleep until I heard Roland's voice on the machine. And once I heard Roland's voice on the machine, I knew it was safe to go to sleep, and I went to sleep. I told him there was no God, and you guys came over the message machine and you tucked him in every night. His relationship with Roland is indescribable. They just adore each other. You don't even know what you're doing when you're doing it. Just like Howard and Sullivan, you know? Just like that guy under the bed. Didn't even know. Roland had no idea. And Micah told me this during a period of time where Roland felt that he had not had any impact on anybody in AA. I said, oh, really? Let me tell you this. And um, I, uh, I had all these resentments, you know. I had this thing with Micah's eye with all of this stuff, and I, uh, I was just crippled by it, just crushed, just deflated the ego at depth. And I didn't know what to do. And my sponsor just said, do your job, do your job in AA. So I start doing the right stuff. I got to do a lot of lame crap. I got to, like, spend some booze bucks to, you know, to buy him a baseball mitt and spend some dope dollars to, like, you know, register them in a Little League. I start going to Little League games, flag football games. Lame, 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 lame. I go to my first baseball game, a Little League game. Nancy comes over and sees everyone in the stands and me in the sun, alone, pissed off. Just psycho, you know, going up and down two hat sizes in the sun. I'm here, I'm doing my job, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. The kids are thrilled to see me, you know. Mr. Redmond's going to blow up. Look. Um... <laughs> It took me a couple of years for the voices to diminish in volume and number to go and sit down in the stands with the people, to just be a guy at my sobriety station in the stands. <sighs> and I did it for a couple of years, and my son Jesse received what I believe is one of the greatest compliments any human being can receive. He was intentionally walked, which if you're not a baseball fan, it means they're scared of you and they want to get to the weenie behind you. Uh, and uh, he didn't want to be a geek and jump up and down. You got to be cool, so you just put the bat down, you know, and you got and and he, and, uh, and trotted up the first baseline. And on the way up the first baseline, he looked at me and just flashed me just a little bit of stuff, just a little bit. It's the old man. You don't want to spoil him. Don't be lame. And uh, and I could have missed the whole thing. I could have missed the whole thing by a second and an inch. And I'm not telling you that Jesse got uh, intentionally walked because I'm sober. I told you I, I was at my sobriety station because I'm sober. 
That's what happened. And I've told enough guys who have been drunk on their kid's birthday again about the day my kid got walked. I gotta go into school now and I gotta sit down with the teachers and do the horrible, embarrassing thing and say, my kids are sick. They've been sick because they've been living with me. I've been terribly ill. Can you help us? Not once has any, anybody ever said, no. No, we won't help you. Every single time, they said, every single time, you know, if you're new here, you're gonna hear a lot of people talking about helping you. If you don't let us help you, you're probably not gonna be willing to help anybody else. That's just been my experience. Give us a break. We're pathetic. We need to help you. Let us help you. <laughs> Please. Um, when Micah was born, we were surrounded by friends and family. I had a ton of phone calls and a lot of flowers. And when Jesse was born, two years and nine months later, nobody came to the hospital. Nobody called us. Jesse went up in incubator. He was sick. Nancy was alone, so alone that they almost put out a psych alert on her because she was all alone. Nobody came visit. Our family couldn't even come. Nobody could come. It hurt too much to be around us. The ice around our heart had become so thick it had repelled everybody. And a doctor calls me that night. Micah was two. Jesse was brand new. He says, Mr. Redmond, you got to come down here. Your wife is having a breakdown. The baby's sick. I said, look, I can't. My kids, I can't find anybody to watch my two-year-old son. She said, I'll tell you what. I'll give you my phone number, and you can take your son, my husband's home. This is a doctor in a huge hospital in L.A. Take your son to my house. My husband will watch so you can come down. And I said, no. I said, no. There was no way for me to accept her generosity. And now my son, my poor son, stuck in the house with this psycho. You know, I, I would have done better to take him down and leave him alone in the waiting room with a coloring book. At least he could have gotten away from me for a while, you know. And um, a couple of years ago, uh, one of the guys I sponsor, and I still sponsor him because I work at 10-step because he has pissed me off plenty, called me up and he said they were having the second baby. And uh, he said, will you watch my son so we can go down and have the baby and I got to take care of his kid so he could go down and have his new baby and Jesse took care of the baby with me. Jesse, who I couldn't go and visit at the hospital, he got to take care of this two and a half year old boy with me <laughs> and, and it's Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so uh, the teachers tested the boys and they tested special. They needed a lot of help. And I had to continue doing 10 steps because I was still Embarrassed. I was embarrassed of what the teachers thought of me, although everybody was very kind to me. Um, and I was also very jealous uh, and very scared when I would go into the school and saw other families that seemed okay. It was very embarrassing to me. I felt just horrible about myself, a lot of resentments against myself. And um, the teacher said, get him into sports, which we did. We did the flag football thing and all of that stuff. And, 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 uh, and they said, get him into music because it will help with the small motor stuff. So uh, Jesse wanted to play drums. So I, I, I went down. I, I took some booze bucks and spent like $12 on, on a drum pad. It's a piece of wood with a piece of rubber and two sticks. Very simple apparatus. He wanted it. I did the right thing. I went to my home group. I told him I had done the right thing because I'm supposed to do that. That's what I'm supposed to do. I was really proud of myself. And within two weeks, the AA drum set showed up at the house. There were like a lot of burnout drummers in my group at that time. So they're like guys coming over with these mega death drums going, dude, and uh, laying them off. Jesse went up with his drum set. You couldn't see him when he sat behind it. This little tiny voice is coming by. And I'm serious. It was humongous. 
And the same thing happened with Micah and his instruments, uh, keyboards and stuff. And uh, a couple of years ago, my sons played the House of Blues. They played the House of Blues in L.A., and they burnt the dump down. Burn it down. And uh, they, they played at this packed house. They're playing hip-hop music. The kids are standing elbow to elbow. The place is just flipping out. And there's this group of weeping middle-aged alcoholics standing over to the side. And, and, like, the kids are going, what is with the crying old people? What is that all about? Usually they bring backup singers, but there's these weeping old people who look like they've been around the block a little bit. So, and that's their AA and Al-Anon uh, aunts and uncles uh, who have been following them around for 16 years. Uh, a couple of years ago, um, my son Micah was babysitting for a, a couple in the program, and the guy said to him, uh, what do you think of... Um, uh, of your father, of hearing your father speak in AA, and Mike said, "I don't really think anything about it. I don't go. To, I'm not a member." And I, he said, "All I can tell you is that since I'm a very, very little boy, the men and women of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon have taken very, very good care of me, and never once has any of them demanded that I believe what they believe." What an incredible thing! What an extraordinary compliment! What a, what an am amazing testament to. Uh, to attraction rather than promotion. And that, that was a statement made, that was a compliment to you guys made based on his experience as a member of an AA Al-Anon family. And I will just tell you that it's been a war of attrition for me that a couple of years ago I looked at my son's name on my, my A-step list. I looked at it and I crossed him out. I knew I was done. I knew I was done, that I was current and I could move forward. I will tell you now that when I look at my son's eye, I don't see that scar. I don't. And that was a scar that was never going to go away. And my father was never going to come back into my life. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to tell a little story about my brother, and then we'll take our last break. I, um, I, this, this resentment against my brother would come back uh, <clears throat> now and again, when, when, especially when milestones would get hit in my, my kids' lives, because he's missing the whole thing. He's missing the whole thing, you know? And uh, so I, uh, the, the defect of ungrateful came up, and I realized that I should be grateful that I don't have to talk to the guy. This is a very troubled guy. It might not be a lot of fun to be talking to him. Plus, it might really be awful for my kids to have to talk to him. He might be just really in bad shape. So I started feeling grateful to not have to talk to him. Then it came back again after, like, the boys graduated high school, things were going on, and I had an incredible spiritual experience with it. I thought, and I thought this thing because I've seen, have you ever seen people in AA, good sponsor, good guy, can't get along? Good gal, good sponsor, don't get along. They're still good gals, good guys, good sponsors, but they don't get along. They're not right for each other. It's not a good fit. It would be injurious for them to stay together. They're going to move on and they're going to do good work elsewhere. Right? Why can't I apply that to my brother? Why can't I imagine? What's blocking me from this is my egomania, because I'm thinking, you know, there's a lot of guys who'd love to be my brother. <laughs> a lot of guys, you know, I'm a nice guy. I'm a nice guy. And don't you forget it. What if it is so injurious to my brother to have contact to me with me that it is a blessing for him to not have to talk to me. What about that? How about that as an expression of ingratitude, that I could be grateful for him that he's strong enough to not talk to me. But he should like me. But I'm nice. 
Forget about all that. That's my defects. That's self-centeredness. That's playing God. That's greed. What if it is so injurious to him to be in contact with me that it is really great for him to not talk to me? What a tough thing for me to admit. What a tough thing for me to take in. And it really has worked. It's really worked splendidly. Now, guys, we're going to have one more break. If you can make it back here, you're, you're better people than I am. And um, uh, we'll take at least 10 minutes, and then we'll drive this sucker home. We'll finish off with some 10-step work and some 11-step work. Thanks.